0: Welcome to the Earth Wants You radio show. This week Savitri and Billy are in Greece and they're going to send us a quick message before we get on with the show which was pre-recorded just last week. So here is Savi, Billy and Lena from Greece.
1: This is Savitri D. I'm here in Athens, Greece with Reverend Billy and Lena Talon. Looking back at New York City and the big family separation rallies and marches across the country on Saturday, June 30th, watching that from Athens. What was that like for you, Billy?
2: Wow, well, coitus interruptus. uh, Months and months and months of work with that terrifying uh, knowledge that individual people are in such pain, families separated. Well, that was going on the whole time, and then suddenly it seemed as if the entire country was aware of it. After dealing with it on a daily basis ourselves,
1: Yeah, it was really interesting to suddenly see thousands of people saying words that we've been trying to get thousands of people to say for months and months, and then just to watch it spread like wildfire across the country and suddenly see 25,000 people shouting abolish ICE, you know, when just a few weeks earlier we were standing lonely there with little flyers passing them out on the streets of New York.
2: Yes, and suddenly... You know, responding to an agreement that we had made last year sometime, we we had to leave New York just at the point that uh, tens of thousands of people were suddenly marching.
1: I had a memory of uh, 16 months ago in March of 2017 when Ravi was first asked to check in by ICE and we went there with the intent of responding if he was deported that day. And he uh, was, you know, he walked out of the federal building, but behind him there were three women indigenous women from the central highlands of central america in the jungle there so i don't know if they were mexican or guatemalan but they were standing there and they had a sign that said them keep families together and they were yes. chanting in their yes. beautiful soft voices They're keep families together keep families together and it was a seed for us we made a, a song out of it a vamp keep. Families together. Keep families together. But just on Saturday it was amazing because Robbie stood in almost the exact same place and there were twenty five thousand people saying the same words. And I thought this is this is how movements get built. It takes time and it takes the work of so many people. And then it takes this fire being lit and you don't know when the fire is going to catch you don't know when it's going to gain the momentum and eat it all along just a note to self you know to just keep on going because sometimes it feels pretty bad you think wow where is everybody but look now people are showing up and we need more
2: people i I talked to folks before coming out here to Athens I was talking to folks about about their the, the personal schedule that they had, what were they noticing? How emotionally were they getting, emotionally involved were they getting through the weeks and months? People have such crowded lives. I think that what happens is very suddenly, children in cages just, people just canceled everything. They just said, I'm not going to do that or that or that or that. They have full, especially New Yorkers, have full schedules. Every 15 minutes or a half hour, they've got it assigned. I'm saying they, we have committed ourselves uh, often to wonderful causes, often to career, so forth and so on. The children in the cages met the growing concern that most people, that's what people said to me, they said, I was watching it and feeling more and more unease.
1: Let's hope so. Let's hope everyone's feeling increasing unease. Let's hope and that when the next one, there'll be 250,000 people. And then finally we'll have 250 million and that'll be the whole country almost. (laughs) What about you, Lena? What did you notice?
0: Well, I've noticed the beautiful sign. I forget what it says, but it was really fun making. And the fire on it is really nice. Oh yes. And also it's huge. So I just wanna give a congrats to my mom Savitre D for making that sign and how it looked impossible to me.
1: I think she's referring to our now epic Go to Hell Jeff Sessions, which is <laughs> clearly the highlight of my entire life.
2: Like the the No.
1: The high, the high point of my whole life was no. making that sign, two stories tall, that says "Go to Hell, Jeff Sessions." I'd like to thank our <laughs> producer Killian Sinderman for helping with that, and all of our listeners <laughs> for all your encouragement along the way. So, uh-huh. this is Savitri D and Reverend Billy. Hallelujah. Bye bye. And wait, wait, can you say what you were singing? What were you singing?
3: It's the words. Refugees. The words. Uh, translate the words can be translated this better, yes. Can you say the words again and I will be translated? Um, so, I, um, I forget and I'm happy, I, uh, remember I remember and I'm sad. I remember the, the far away and I, I have to go. Wake up, mother, and... Uh, Make some bread. Um, she is in pain when she makes the bread and tearful. So, so, she uses the tears instead of water to make the bread. <laughs> um, άρχισε φούρνο να καείς και σε ψωμί να γέννεις. Σε παρακαλάει το φούρνο δηλαδή. She pleads, well, she says, please, uh, oven, um, do not burn so quickly. And uh, bread, do not bake so quickly. Για να περάσει ο κερατζής, the leader of the So the leader of the caravan will pass and my son can stay there can stay here. Because the bread is not ready yet. <laughs> Some yes. go to another land, yes. this is the pain that uh, she's going to lose him, mm-hmm. who knows, who knows how, yeah. tha- how many, okay. how but long. It was called death, because somebody left and they couldn't write each other, because they couldn't read or they couldn't phone each other. So once someone went to work somewhere else, like in Germany or in the U.S., it was over, it was over, yeah.
2: The earth wants you. Welcome, children. This is the radio hour of the Church of Stop Shopping. I'm Reverend Billy here with our deaconess, Salvatry D. Deaconess? Uh, She pulled a face. What? She doesn't want to be an official in the church. She doesn't like that formality. I don't like titles. (laughs) I already have a name. (laughs) Today today we have a really... uh, Surprising, brilliant, um, very special guest Sh- Sarah Schulman will be with us. Uh, speaking to um, Savitri about well, many issues, but gentrification, act up. She's just a, 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 a fixture and a hero. You know, maybe she wouldn't appreciate hero or fixture or fixture. Who knows? <laughs> and you don't, you don't appreciate deaconess. So the the. Uh, See how men get into
1: trouble. (laughs) They start talking. They (laughs) start talking and then they're in trouble.
2: I'm just proud to be a white male heterosexual Mm -hmm. in 2018. God, that feels good.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: We have a panda crying out to us today. um, Featured in our, our special segment called Extinction's Got Talent. And what else do we have today here? Oh, music! You're supposed from to help the, me with this.
1: Music from the stop shopping choir. Of course. News from the natural world, and who knows a surprising visitor from far away.
2: We'll just have to wait for that <laughs> for that for that alien to burst through the windows and.
1: Let's go to the news. Get
2: on the radio with us.
1: Welcome. To news from the natural world, I'm Savitri D. Some 12 million girls a year are married before the age of 18, with often devastating consequences for their health and education. Ending the practice by 2030 is among the United Nations sustainable development goals. About 25 million early marriages have already been prevented just in the last decade. The biggest decline was in South Asia, where the risk of a girl marrying before her 18th birthday has fallen from 50% to 30%, according to UNICEF. Poverty is often the key reason for child marriage, but protracted conflicts, for example in Syria, or extreme weathers in countries including Bangladesh, <laughs> Mali, and Niger have put more girls at risk. Big <clears throat> Big supermarket chains like France's Carrefour and Kenya's Nakumat have already started offering customers cloth bags as alternatives to plastic after the ban went into effect in Kenya, creating demand for fibers like sisal. Sisal. Farmers are taking more interest in sisal due to the growing demand for shopping bags made with plant fiber. Sisal provides a greener alternative to plastic as it decomposes faster and can be recycled as farm manure. Kenya is the world's third biggest producer of sisal. So this is all like a, a, a brand new kind of crop emerging because plastic bags are banned in Kenya, and the ban is pr- pretty strict. There's a, new <laughs> There's a new addition to the list of water quality problems plaguing India's groundwater. Recently published research has shown that the level of uranium is significantly higher than the limits suggested by the WHO in several parts of the country, particularly in Gujarat and Rajasthan. This is a concern because a high concentration of uranium in the body has been linked to chronic kidney disease. Groundwater concerns are not new in India. One of the most prominent issues that has gained global attention is arsenic contamination in the Ganges and Brahmaputra basins, affecting several states. Prolonged exposure to arsenic can lead to different types of cancers and ultimately death. An estimated 230,000 gallons of crude oil spilled into floodwaters in the northwestern corner of Iowa following a train derailment last week. French Water and Waste Group Veolia has opened what it says is Europe's first recycling plant for solar panels and aims to build more as thousands of tons of aging solar panels are set to reach the end of their life in coming years. Mumbai has become the largest Indian city to ban single-use plastics with residents caught using plastic bags, cups, or bottles to face penalties of up to 25,000 rupees, which is a lot of money. That's 276 British pounds or roughly 400 US dollars. And three months in jail. Three months in jail, people. We need that here. No, no more jail in the United States, but the big fine, yes swaths of the San Joaquin Valley in California have sunk 28 feet, nearly three stories since the 1920s, and some areas have dropped almost three feet in the past two years. Blame it on farmers' relentless groundwater pumping. The plunder of California's aquifers is a budding environmental catastrophe a budding environmental catastrophe that scientists warn might spark a worldwide food crisis. This is not sustainable, says Jay Familigetti. Wow, a lot of Tough words today. Fama a senior water scientist at NASA. If these aquifers continue to be depleted, and if we start running out of water in these big aquifer systems, the global food system is going into meltdown mode. You know what that means? Less humans on Earth. Hidden from view, groundwater accounts for 30 to 60% of the water that Californians use every year. That's a lot. It would take the District of Columbia 700 years to use 80 million acre feet of water. Okay, but since the 20s, California has pumped between 150 million to 160 million acre-feet and not replenished it. It's hard to understand uh, these numbers. Uh, What is a million acre-feet? Well, an acre-foot is 326,000 gallons of water, about what two Los Angeles families use in one year. So when when we hear that... The District of Columbia, in 700 years, uses 80 million acre feet of water. Or California has pumped between 150 million to 160 million acre feet that have not been replenished. Remember that an acre foot is 326,000 gallons. That's what two families in Los Angeles use for the entire year. What I'm telling you is that we can't possibly understand this. (laughs) Oh, there's more. It found that the study finds that Southern California racked up a water deficit of 45 gigatons. What is a gigaton? A gigaton is enough to fill, check it out, 400,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools.
0: I don't think I understood any of that, (laughs) except that we're in trouble, water-wise.
1: Water-wise. Like these are astonishing amounts of water and we're using it up for nothing. Okay, an extreme shortage of hay as a result of unprecedented drought in Southwest Colorado (laughs) forced livestock operations struggling to survive to make tough decisions. I've never seen it this dry, says Barbara Jeffries. With the La Plata Archuleta Cattlemen's Association, it's not going to be good. Drought conditions started in Southwest Colorado last fall and have persisted ever since. The San Juan Mountains received just half the amount of snowfall it usually does, leaving reservoirs in the area precariously dry it's already on fire colorado's already burning
2: that was a lame ending
1: no I think that should be my new tagline sorry about that
2: sorry about that that's so
1: much bad news and also just an absolutely inscrutable and impossible to understand list of numbers about water use in california wow <laughs> Yeah. Do you remember that, Killian? It's coming back to you. 400,000 Olympic swimming pools. I
0: mean, the water crisis is really the big thing that's happening right now. And it's slowly slipping into public consciousness. And also, I guess, slowly slipping into your, your news and taking over. And it's the really, I mean, it's the biggest thing. And when water becomes an issue, we in Ireland had our largest manifestation ever when the government moved to privatize our water. Uh, people came out in droves in ways that they never had before because it's such a visceral thing it's primal really it's so primal and um and we had a a lady speak who was from Canada and she said you have no idea how how big this is and how massive it's going to be it's it's the next climate change in terms of how b- times 10 right times 10 and um she said just pull up your socks and get ready
1: well, some people say this is why you have to arm yourself, right? This is why you have to have weapons. It's because of water. I mean, there are lots of people who, you know, they have all these the, those preppers, right? And they, they store food for two years and they store all the stuff and then they they forget that. Oh, well, if you have those things and someone else doesn't.
2: Well, then it. we should have water guns. We should have squirt guns.
1: <laughs> I think that's a great idea. I'm trying to be logical here. You know what? In I terms like of your water, logic. I in like water how you conversation,
0: think. I don't think that's good, though, right? <laughs> You're well, wasting it. You should be drinking it.
1: I just water is
2: life. Boom. There but I, I
1: just keep thinking about the... The numbers I read last last week about India—that by 2030 the demand for water will be twice as much as it can currently be met by the water they have. I don't know where's this rest of this water going to come from? Rain? No, that's not how it works. It's, it's a self-willed system.
2: disbelief. You, the the uh, numbers keep encroaching. The arguments, the studies they keep coming at you and you keep ignoring them and then all of a sudden there's hurricane sandy you know and the and the water's up to the second floor and and between the two situations there was nothing there's there, no consciousness at all Just.
0: i remember a guy at when this lady from canada was talking about the water going and he was some dublin guy and he must have i don't know but she was talking about the water it was very scary she said like lakes are drying up everywhere india's without water china's without water it's crazy and then this guy was like um like some, he like slowly raised his hand and was like can we not drink like the sea can we just drink the stuff from the sea like turn it <laughs> into can we do that and she looked at him like oh god <laughs> you know oh, what I water think water everywhere
1: stereotypes the way you're talking right now can we not reinforce stereotypes?
0: Uh, but I, I'm Irish, so it's okay. <laughs> I was just doing my, my actual accent. Yes. Oh, right. I
1: see. Oh, that was your cousin? Um,
2: and I'm from the, the Midwest, so I'm, I'm with my accent, I'm, well, you know, we're chauvinists and we think we have no accent.
1: In any case, the deficit of water in Southern California between 2002 and 2015 is 45 gigatons. And just to give you an example of how much water that is, that is, the, that is one and a half times the amount of water in Lake Mead. And if any of you have ever been to Lake Mead, Lake Mead is an, uh, the biggest res- reservoir in the country. It, it goes for miles. You, it takes more than an hour to drive by it. It's vast, humongous. And that is, uh, yeah, the deficit, the water deficit. Guys, we got to, I don't know what we're going to do. But when I start thinking about water and how there isn't enough of it, I get scared.
2: Well, the emergency is on. But people are not urgent. They're not getting the urgency and the emergency. One of the, one of the things that needs to be landed upon people's consciousness is that water is finite. There's only so much of it at any given moment.
1: That's
4: right.
2: That includes the clouds. That includes the clouds.
1: And the glaciers.
2: People look up at the clouds and they say, oh, there will be more water because there will be, you know, it will come down upon my head. All of the water of the earth, (laughs) the fresh water of the earth is a finite amount. It's a certain number of gallons. If you start poisoning it, then you're reducing the amount of water that can nourish us.
1: And the Lakota say water is the first medicine. Water is the first medicine. Amen. Mini Wikoni. And hear a song.
5: Dicen que por las <laughs> noches Nomás se le iba en puro puro Dicen que no comía Nomás se le iba en puro tomar Juran que el mismo cielo se estremecía al oír su llanto Como sufría por ella que hasta en su muerte la fue llamando Tchau,
1: Sarah Schulman, a novelist, playwright, AIDS historian, and currently a distinguished professor of the humanities at the College of Staten Island. Uh, She's a longtime activist in New York City and worked with ACT UP, the Lesbian Avengers, uh, a host of other things, and uh, is the co-founder of the ACT UP oral history project which uh, you can find online and which I encourage all of you to check out welcome Sarah thank you, thank you so much thank you for coming in I w- Sarah Luya I want to start uh, by asking you about the ACT UP archive um, it's a place that I, I think of it as a place a place that I go and I, usually in the winter months I spend time there and I really just dive into those stories and those lives and it's a very moving space um, but can you talk about not just the origins of the project, but but uh, what it was like for you living in New York City during the AIDS crisis? Just briefly talk to us, because I feel like people don't really know about it
6: anymore. Well, funny you should bring that up because I'm actually writing a book right now. It's called "Let the Record Show: ACT UP and the Enduring Relationship of AIDS." And I'm relying on the archive, which is called the ACT UP Oral History Project, to do a book-length political analysis of ACT UP, why its strategies were effective, and what we can learn from those strategies and apply today. So the ACT UP Oral History Project was started in 2001 by myself and Jim Hubbard. And in the next 17 years, I interviewed 187 surviving members of ACT UP New York. So if people go to actuporalhistory.org, they can watch five minutes of streaming video with each of these interviews, and they can download transcripts for free. Now, apparently, 550,000 transcripts have been downloaded, mm. and we've had 11 million visits. Oh. So two people can do a lot. hmm But what's it? What you know? It's video technology that made that archive possible because historically people only interview leadership of social movements, Mm -hmm. but we were able to interview a really good sector of the rank and file, and a lot is revealed. I mean, uh, my book is going to be about 500 pages, Mm -hmm. so there's quite a bit there.
1: Yeah, I ask because you know, in your book, gentrification of the mind, um, you you, there's this startling uh, revelation that the AIDS crisis was the kind of initiating instigator of the gentrification that, that swept through New York or seemed to sweep through New York in the 90s. Especially and, the village. And uh, when I read that, as someone who had been working against gentrification and, and, and consumerism more broadly, I thought, oh, I never made that connection at all. So for me, it was more than a light bulb. It was, it was revelatory. Um, But I think even today, people are not making that connection. So could you talk just briefly about uh, how you saw that the first time? How it came to you that that was
6: a a causal relationship? Well, it's kind of a long story. So let me start. We're not afraid of that. Okay, so let me start with um, how we got where we are with gentrification. Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about its relationship to AIDS. So basically, after World War II, there was a GI Bill. And it enabled, one of the, the aspects of the bill was that the federal government gave very low interest loans to veterans so that they could buy housing in this brand new phenomena called the suburbs. Mm-hmm. So in this way, the federal government used the bodies of veterans to put money into the pockets of the developers of the suburbs. And, but the problem was that the suburbs were racist. So they only really accepted ethnic whites. Mm-hmm. So you see this huge move out of cities of working class and lower middle class white people who were you know, Jewish, Irish, German, Italian into, su- into this new phenomenon called the suburbs. And we call this period white flight. Mm-hmm. Now, the suburbs not only were racially stratified, but they also had a lot of... It was based on the concept of privatized living. So whereas in the cities, people lived in buildings, apartments, and they knew each other and they knew what was going on, in the suburbs, people lived in single-family dwellings. So a lot of things that went on in the family became private and secret. Part of that was that during World War II, women had been in industrial labor and had earned quite a bit of money and also skills, Mm -hmm. but when the soldiers came back, they pushed women out of industrial labor so that those men could have those jobs. Mm -hmm. So part of the ideology of the suburbs was this domestic role for women. You know, the invention of the middle-class housewife. Instead of going to the laundromat with all your neighbors, everyone had their own washing machine, and there was a lot of isolation and separation. So there was racial stratification, there was gender stratification, there was compulsory heterosexuality. And there also was this introduction of chain stores and a lot of homogenous culture. And this creates a suburban mentality. This was something that had never existed before. We'd had small towns, but we never had suburbanization. Mm -hmm. It was a completely different structure because it didn't grow organically. In the meantime, you have the city, the city of white flight. And this is the city's most exciting period politically. This is when you see the Black Panthers and the Young Lords and gay liberation and women's liberation these are all products of urbanity. These are Mm -hmm. not products of the suburbs. They're produced by the mix. Because the thing that makes cities great is the mix. Mm -hmm. It's the the fact that people live with difference and that's what produces new ideas, new political ideas, Mm -hmm. new political movements, new art ideas for the world. When you homogenize a city, you destroy the mix and then cities can no longer be sites of production of new ideas. So you see all these revolutionary movements in cities in the 60s and 70s. And I'm not saying that that's the reason why gentrification happened, but I think that it's a factor. Mm -hmm. So in the 70s, you start to see this rhetoric that New York is going broke. Mm -hmm. And the argument is made that there's not enough rich people in the city, our tax base is too narrow, we can't afford infrastructure. And so there's this propaganda that evolves that if we expand and bring in more rich people, We will have more money for our infrastructure. Now, of course, we look at New York City today. It's filled with rich people, and hospitals, public transportation, Mm -hmm. schools could not be worse than they are now. They're all broke. Because in the interim, we had Reaganism and all these tax breaks. So rich people stopped paying taxes. Mm -hmm. So that equation turned out to be false. But we did see one of the things that happened in the beginning of gentrification is that the city stopped building low-income housing. So instead, we had corporate welfare. We had tax breaks for private developers, and they were developing either luxury housing or condo conversion. They were not building any housing for poor people. So who was the object intended for all this housing? The children of white flight. The people who had grown up in racial Mm, stratification, mm who had an emotional attachment to the city because their parents had been born here, their grandparents probably lived here, they took the commuter train to the city to buy drugs or to go to (laughs) rock concerts or whatever, and they had a romance of the city. But because they had grown up in an artificial environment that was so stratified, they were not comfortable with urbanity. So they they were the people who were the original gentrifiers Mm -hmm. and who were brought back into the city and they brought Mm -hmm. with them this kind of gated community mentality. Mm -hmm that whereas everyone before them who had moved to New York came to become a New Yorker, they came to change New York. Mm. Mm. So they favored more policing. Mm -hmm. They really embraced and had an emotional attachment to homogenous culture. They liked it when things were the same and were predictable. So they embraced uh, chain stores. You start to see a certain kind of fusion aesthetic Mm -hmm. coming into the city which previously, for example, let's look at food, like New Yorkers before gentrification would go to different ethnic neighborhoods and would eat the food that those people made right. and ate. But this new kind of much more expensive fusion food started to come in that had different kinds of flavors and much more expensive ingredients, and they ceased to be serving the communities from whom that food had come. Right. So that's just part of this homogenous aesthetic right. That was more expensive.
2: And that changed the rents, those new Well, the rents changed
6: first, but they they came in, yes, absolutely. And so you see that there's a whole change in the vocabulary about how people describe the city, that the point of view of the city was changed to be the point of view of gentrifiers. So, -hmm. for example, a neighborhood that was mixed class and mixed race uh, would start to become homogenous, and the people who had lived there initially would be in danger but instead of calling that dangerous, we were told that neighborhood was getting better, even though it was more dangerous for the people who lived there. So we see the whole subjectivity switching mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. how the city mm-hmm. was viewed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then what we see, you know, then this whole first wave of gentrification was these kinds of like the wine bar aesthetic and th- places like used refrigerator stores and TV repair, all of those were driven out. So the places that serviced working class people disappeared and more expensive places came in. That Mm -hmm. was the first run. After that, we saw uh, late stage gentrification where those kinds of businesses that had made neighborhoods turn white and more homogenous, they themselves were driven out because now the rents were so high that the only people who could afford them were drugstores or banks or Dunkin Donuts or something Mm -hmm. like that. Now we're in the more advanced stage where we're seeing empty storefronts, where there's there's emptiness all over the city as people are holding on to that, mm-hmm. that material. Now the question here is where did AIDS come in? Mm-hmm. So this began in the 70s. Now AIDS was the first noticed by science in 1981. We now know that we have evidence of AIDS in the United States back to 1940s. But science didn't notice it until people who had access to good health care started to manifest symptoms, and then they started to observe patterns. So in 1981, there was a famous article in the New York Times, Mm -hmm. seven cases of what they called gay cancer, Mm -hmm. which is a fascinating concept because it shows that they still had this concept of homosexual biology that you could have such a thing as gay cancer. Now we know that that's a ridiculous concept. But um, they thought that there were seven cases. We now actually know that 200,000 people were infected by that point. Oh, my heavens. So what you start to see is right in the middle of gentrification in New York, you start to get very, very high and rapid death rates Mm -hmm. from AIDS in key cities and in key neighborhoods. Because from 1981 till 1986, there were 40,000 people who died of AIDS in the United States. Mm. Now, the two cities in America to, to gentrify first were San Francisco and New York. These were the two cities with the highest rates of AIDS deaths at the time. Here we have an ambulance, an ambulance going by That's as if to give we're a, a soundtrack to this. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Bring on the noise. So, um, Because what was happening was people would die and their apartments would go to market rate. Right in the middle. So if you have a neighborhood where a few thousand people have died of AIDS, and their apartments were like $200 a month, and it's right in the middle of gentrification, those apartments are going to be $800 a month or $1,200 a month. So when you look at New York, the most gentrified neighborhoods are like Harlem, Lower East Side, Chelsea. These were the neighborhoods with the highest AIDS death rates. Neighborhoods like the Upper East Side that had very low AIDS death rates have almost no gentrification. I mean, compared to other neighborhoods. Another thing that was involved in this was that at the time there was no relationship recognition for gay people. Mm -hmm. So if the leaseholder died, the partner or roommate could not inherit the lease, oh. right, right? And this was also true in public housing, not just in private housing. Mm. So there were two different court cases that had to happen: one for public housing and one for private housing, so that surviving partners could keep uh, housing. So all of these factors, you know converged on this and in this way AIDS was a facilitator of gentrification. Mm-hmm. So
1: do you think of the post gentrification how does that look to you? What does post gentrification look like? Will it come and what will it look like? Do you well,
6: think Well, let me just say that today we do not no one knows what's going to happen in this country, right? It's impossible to know. And we have all kinds of scenarios in all directions. Mm-hmm. But if you look at a map of every construction in New York City that's already been approved, even if it hasn't been built, what you can see that we're looking at a whole new city being built on top mm-hmm. of this city because all existing housing stock has already been seized. So what they're doing is they're building luxury towers, but they're not building any public infrastructure to accompany it. So there's no real mass transit, there's no new hospitals, there's no new schools. What's happening is it's a vision of the city that is uninhabitable. That the city functions only as a site of financial investment. And that rich people use buildings as kinds of um, safe deposit boxes mm-hmm. for their cash. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very telling, for example, in the Manafort money laundering thing with Trump that they hid their money in real yeah. estate in <laughs> Brooklyn. Like Carroll Gardens, Brownstones. Right. Yeah. And, and that, is their, that is their image of the future of the city. And if you look nationally, we see that gentrification is no longer neighborhood by neighborhood. It's now city by Mm -hmm. city. Yes. So so all the A-list cities are gentrified. And and poor people are expected to live in cities that have no functional infrastructure. So
1: do you think it will take a catastrophe to undo this? Is there any? uh, Like in the environmental movement, we talk about rewilding. We talk about how fast nature restores itself when humans leave it alone. Um, Is there some scenario like that that's possible in a city? Sure.
6: How long
2: would it take for us to get back to Charlie Parker?
6: (laughs) Well, let me say that it's a question of political will. We know that if we had 500,000 truly affordable housing units in New York City with accompanying infrastructure, gentrification would end. And when de Blasio first ran, his platform was 200,000 affordable mm-hmm. housing units. Mm-hmm. Then when we saw his plan, we realized that actually was a gentrifying plan.
2: When he gave that award to Bruce Ratner uh, six weeks into his tenure at the Municipal Arts Society, do you remember that? He was the host of, a, you know, giving Ratner this award
6: well, his plan is to go into low-income neighborhoods and build graduated-income housing that will enable market rate, i.e. gentrify those neighborhoods, and then have a few apartments that they consider affordable but are actually not affordable. Mm. Um,
2: Can I say, just for the, for the, the people in, uh, you know, New Mexico and Fairbanks, Alaska, who are listening right now to our conversation, we're getting a little bit, we're making some references that may not be widely known. Uh, Just to take this last uh, part of the conversation, Bruce Ratner uh, proposed at one point a plan for Brooklyn that would have put up 22 skyscrapers, like Sarah said, without attendant infrastructure to uh, no considerations of parking.
1: Or subway access. uh, Schools
2: and so forth. It was just these monoliths. So that's, uh, uh, that's, I know that we, we have to be careful we, I, I, I that's, that's one reference that I, I think might not be understood outside of the, possibly this room <laughs> but certainly the city limits
1: well, Sarah you're an expert in many things um, but you have done a lot of activism in your life and you have been an activist it seems from the record for decades um, I wonder if you feel or if you could address what it was like to do activism with the specter of death so close by um, as opposed to um you know say what an environmentalist working on climate change addresses with climate change in this kind of abstracted future state or happening to people very far away do you see a difference or did the amplification of uh, this sort of urgency how did that affect your work
6: well this is what my book is about and you know i'm trying to really distill why act up was so successful um you know just, just just to frame it for people uh there were no treatments at all available for aids and the people and gay people at that time had no rights so for example you could be kicked out of a restaurant denied a job denied housing legally in new york city until 1986 mm. and gay sex was illegal in the country mm-hmm. until 2003 <laughs> So we're looking at people who were a despised group of people with no rights, who had been abandoned by their families and the society who were facing a terminal disease with no treatments. And those were the stakes. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, how were these people able to create such a profound paradigm shift that today we have treatments available and existing that a person infected with HIV today can live a normal lifespan if they have access to the treatments? Right, right. Which in the United States, only one third of HIV positive people have access to the standard of care. But nonetheless, that is a tremendous accomplishment. So I mean, there's a lot to be said about that and it's really a whole other conversation. But let me just say that the key issue and why I think ACT UP was successful is that they allowed for multiplicity of opinion Mm -hmm. and there was no uh, need or desire for consensus. So for example, and this was not ideological, this was absolutely practical, because people were dying all the time and act up, and we had no time to waste. Right. So for example, if you wanted to do needle exchange on the Lower East Side, and get arrested, and start a court case to try to set a precedent for needle exchange, if I thought that was something crazy, I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't try to stop you from doing it. If I wanted to interrupt Mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral because the Catholic Church was trying to keep condoms out of the public schools and you thought that was terrible, you just wouldn't come. You wouldn't try to stop me from doing it. Mm-hmm. And that is why ACT UP was successful. They had simultaneity of response on multiple in multiple arenas because people can only be where they're at. And if your whole focus is try to get other people to be where you're at, you will fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and and so a truly healthy movement facilitates people acting on all different levels uh-huh. at the same time, mm-hmm. which is really the opposite of where we are today. Yeah. You know, and where we are today is, doesn't work, right. especially when you're in a situation as we're in, in the ca- current national cataclysm where so many different kinds of people are under attack. In so many different realms, that asking those people to all agree on the same strategy is impossible, Mm -hmm. or even the same analysis, or even to have a shared list of common Mm -hmm. values—it doesn't make any sense. The point is to to encourage and foster rebellion and resistance in all different ways, based on what people think they need to do. Mm.
1: Yeah, great. Yeah.
2: Oh, thank you.
1: Yeah, let's just take a break for one second. Thank you, Sarah Shulman. Beautiful, thank you, Killian. Welcome back to the Earth Wants You, and it's time now for <clears throat> Extinction's Got Talent. And today, the panda bear oh Long my god, a poster child for nature protection and for China. The charismatic black and white giant panda is one of the world's most adored creatures. Oh, pandas. It lives in the mountains of central and southwestern China, where 99% of its diet is bamboo. bamboo. Despite the fact that the panda, which is in the bear family, is classified as a carnivore. In ancient China, pandas were often regarded as rare and noble. Westerners are not believed to have seen a panda until the early 20th century, when in 1916, German zoologist Hugo Weigold purchased a cub. In the 1920s, Teddy Roosevelt became the first American to shoot a panda. (laughs) In the the information I didn't need to have category (laughs) tick. Uh, And hear the sound of the giant panda. Wow. Silly. You'd be silly, too, if you spent all day trying to get a diet from bamboo.
2: Amen. Well, I think that it sounds like a comment on how long it took the colonial overlords to discover them.
1: Well, actually, I think I just could I just interject briefly? Um, it's so interesting uh, that that's part of. The description of the panda is when a white man saw the panda as if its identity i mean it is fascinating that it was only in the 20th century that a white person or a westerner saw a panda but why is that relevant
2: you can bet that a white male wrote that
1: <laughs> even a former earth First or an environmentalist
2: <laughs> history is written by the victors amen well the uh, panda is, uh, you know, I have a, a, a certain derision for the panda. I have to, have to get over that because of the panda image on the tote bags that the Sierra Club sells.
1: It's also, why is it so hard for them to have babies? Do you think that we're, we're engineering the, the continuation of the panda species? Because I have to say, if it's that hard to have babies, maybe... They have one know. every I'm two gonna years. I'm going to get out of this. I'm getting out that of this. Question Billy, turn it over to you. Billy, Reverend Billy. And the earth wants you.
2: <laughs> Backing out of the panda baby question, going straight into today's sermon. Hallelujah. I love that segue. We have we have the the call of the of the endangered species. We have the call of the endangered human beings. The call of the endangered city as the monoculture comes in a kind of death cultural death people start imitating each other and have less and less difference in their personalities because they've been taught to fear difference in the world around them and so endless chain stores repetitions and of course at the beginning of our at the news from the natural world there was so much so much of a uh, emphasis on something that we're not emphasizing enough, which is water is life, and we're not acting like it is. Water is the first medicine. We are surrounded by signals that are like voices of life passing, life passing prematurely, life passing as a result of something we know we did and continue to do. What are we doing with those voices, those messages? It's becoming so saturating, the weather itself becoming a message of our lifestyle, our industries, our economies, and our culture of aversion to bad news, our addiction to scandal, our aversion to bad news. Catch the difference there? We I got it. I we got it. we have we have been we have been sitting in this symphony hall listening to to the disquieting music of death for decades now. And it's becoming louder and louder and less easily ignored by the day as our political life our nation states our communities are collapsing around us it's a time to reach out to each other and ask the question and find the answer what will we do we just we just we just know that Sarah Shulman is right when she says that you start with activism go straight from that question to the act we have to commit our bodies we have to get up out of that seat and go up on that stage in that Symphony Hall of the apocalypse and make our presence felt otherwise we won't survive let's do that together Earth-a-luia. Thank you for being with us today. The earth wants you. I'm Reverend Billy with Savitri D. This is a production of the Church of Stop Shopping.
1: Thanks to our producer, Killian Sunderman, and the Brooklyn Commons.